From New York University's Center for Sustainable Business, this is The Sustainability Project, a podcast featuring peer-to-peer conversations with Stern alumni on their role in advancing the most pressing environmental and social issues of our time. We talk about challenges, opportunities, what drives them, and how they view the world. I'm your host, Tim Quinn, Stern Class of 2016. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Suma Swaminathan, Stern Class of 2015. Suma currently works in the private equity team for developing world markets, which provides investors access to return-first impact investments in emerging and frontier markets. Prior to joining DWM in 2017, she worked at Empire Valuation Consultants, a boutique consulting firm in New York. Suma, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be on. Based off our first conversation just a few weeks ago, I know you began your career as an engineer. Tell us a little bit about that career change and what you brought you to the world of impact investing. Sure. Uh, thanks, Tim. And you're right. I was an engineer when I started off my career. I'm an engineer by education, uh, and I worked at an information technology company uh, as soon as I graduated from my engineering. All through, uh, through my education, whether it was engineering or before that, and even through the early stages of my career, I was always interested in development. Uh, and I think the single largest factor that drove this interest was growing up in India, where the challenges as well as the potential for positive social impact is is everywhere. It's, it's around you. Uh, and so I grew up very aware of that. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons I uh, always developed this interest and wanted to try and see if I could explore it. So when I was working in technology, I worked both in India and in the U.S., but at this point in time, I was in the U.S., uh, and the urge to explore a career in the development space or explore a career that generated positive social impact, you know, that grew stronger. And so I uh, I found a job at a policy advocacy and research firm that worked in the handloom sector with were Cooperative Societies to try and make the handloom and handicrafts industry a viable rural livelihood. Till today, it's still the second largest rural livelihood in India, but one that's uh, riddled with a lot of challenges with the weavers not wanting to continue. Uh, And so that's where the organization came in. And so I worked there. And this was also right uh, right before Stern. So it was a, you know, fulfilling career. It was a fulfilling role and a project. And I wanted to add on an additional layer of complexity to that to try and understand if there was a way in which I could achieve this impact, but achieve it at a at a larger scale, you know, both in terms of geography and in terms of uh, the numbers. So looking beyond 1,000, 10,000 to actually trying to see how this could be done more systematically in the millions uh, of people. And that led me eventually to impact investing, where I was trying to understand how I can marry my experience in the corporate side of things, where, you know, I'd seen scale, an out-and-out commercial firm, but hadn't, and and then I'd seen the philanthropy side of things or a non-profit side of things, where we were going completely into the impact side of it. So I wanted to see if there was a way to blend the two together. And luckily for me, there was already a nascent industry called impact investing, which married these two. 
and added on a layer of finance, which is also something I was I was quite interested in moving into. So that made me aware of it. And that's when I came to Stern. And while I was at Stern, the one good thing is I was uh, uh, I was I came to Stern as a faculty scholar for social enterprise. And so that helped me get a leg up in trying to spend my time at Stern, understanding more about the space because it was still early days. And I realized the more I read about it, the more I thought it was exactly in line with what I wanted to do. Even from there, it wasn't an immediate next step because it is still a competitive uh, industry and there's, it's a small industry. And like a number of small industries, it's, uh, you know, you need to make your way in after spending a lot of time trying to understand it clearly. And so I ended up working in finance in the city for a for for a couple of years, uh, I worked in uh, asset valuation, which is you know serving me well now in what I do. But once I did that, I kept in I you know, kept in touch with the industry, kept in touch with people I knew, uh, and uh, three years ago joined a firm called Developing World Markets, which is an in- impact investor. They've been around since the late 90s, uh, exclusive focus on impact investing and emerging and frontier markets since the early 2000s. And so I work there now on the private equity team. One thing that I've observed, and I know you've observed as well, is that many regions across the world are further along in terms of progress on ESG and sustainability issues. You've had time in India and you've had time in the United States. What are the types of differences you've seen between both parts of the world? Yeah, so in a lot of the work that I do, uh, because I'm purely focused on emerging and frontier markets, and because I've seen India uh, well, I know India well, but also impact investing. I think of India as a test bed for impact investing. In a lot of ways, it's been the one country where impact investing has been around for 20 years, maybe picked up more speed over the last 10 years, but it's also the country where the microfinance crisis hit a decade ago. And so it's been through an upheaval, what I think of almost as an existential crisis for the industry at that point in time. But it is in a lot of ways that test bed and a and a barometer for you know what segments of the industry are likely to grow. I mean, thing in India in particular. Let me compare that with the U.S. at least. So with India, the one thing we've always kept in mind, or anyone has to keep in mind, is just the is the enormity. You know, the sheer scale, both in terms of the challenges, which are enormous, the socioeconomic challenges. And as a result of that, you know, it goes hand in hand with it, the potential for fixing it or the potential for generating positive impact. So what we see is a number of the companies that we invest in in India, and this is true for a number of emerging markets, the business model is innately embedded with a positive social impact. So a business that is explicitly focused on low-income, middle-income communities is born out of necessity because there is a huge swath of the population that needs these products and services. And there is a way to serve them responsibly. Uh, And that's where this whole point of you know, impact investing, not needing to compromise between risk and returns comes through. So we've seen that play out uh, in, in India and a number of the emerging economies. So I think the one point I'm trying to make is uh, in the emerging economies, the impact side of things, they're very much embedded. When we switch it to a broader sustainability ESG conversation, I think the U.S. is certainly more mature uh, in that sense. It's it's not an area I focus on as much because I'm much more on the impact side. And for any of the 
viewers who or listeners who might not be completely aware of it, but when there's a spectrum within impact investing ranging from you know, philanthropy, which is impact first on one side, and going commercial interest, which is uh, you know returns first on one point. And then in between that, you have a range or a spectrum of socially responsible investing going up until, you know, impact investing, which has a more intentional focus on impact. And so that's sort of what I'm referring to. I think within this uh, responsible investing in India, we, we can or countries like that, there's clearly more avenues or more growth in the out and out impact sector. Uh, in the U.S. too, it, it's true, but we see that the U.S. and Europe are allocators of money for positive impact in emerging markets. The U.S. itself, it certainly has an impact investing market that's growing. Uh, but the ESG side of it, I think, in the developed markets is uh, is much stronger and more more mature. Because in, because in India, for instance, some of the big mutual funds, their ESG funds are maybe a year, a year and a half old, not not much beyond that. So it's a it's a newer market, but the impact investing side of it is is uh, is mature. You mentioned microfinance. I know that is central to some of the work in the type of investing that you look at in your world at DWM. Talk to us a little bit about your role there and what you do in the financial inclusion space. The one thing to understand, I think, with an impact investing is for a number of fund managers and uh, impact investors that started out around the early 2000s, like we did uh, at DWM, Microfinance was uh, starting to pick up, was starting to become investment ready. And so a number of those initial impact investors, that four, first cohort that came up, started with investments into the microfinance sector. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, in, in around 2010, there was the microfinance crisis, which happened in India, particularly in the state of Andhra Pradesh. And as a result of that, the whole industry, I think, took a beat to try and ensure that what it was claiming to do, which was work towards positive impact. So they had to do somewhat of a reset, I think. From that point on, we've continued to see the industry develop and grow. For instance, since we were talking in India, I want to say that the amount of dollars deployed in terms of for impact investing specifically increased from uh, it's increased 10x. So something like 300 million to 3 billion is where we stand now. And the other evolution you'll see is at the beginning, so 10 years ago, most of that would be in financial services. Um, you know, what started off as microfinance and then broadened into SME lending, education finance, housing finance for low to middle income communities. So anything that enables an element of access to credit uh, increases financial resiliency and the financial health of vulnerable segments of the population. And so, you know, it's a tall order. And it's an ambitious goal. But what we've seen is on the ground when we are working with our institutions, especially in the emerging and frontier markets, you know, we started off investing into financial institutions that would serve primarily women borrowers in the low and middle income communities by providing them smaller loans to help them start off enterprises. And then as time evolved, as our clients themselves evolved, as the industry matured, Impact investing as a whole started looking at the broader financial inclusion space. So also started providing uh, investments into SME lenders, which would then serve the severely underserved micro, small, medium enterprises in, in all of these markets that we're working with. And so those would clearly be business loans and they could either be shorter term loans for working capital, longer term loans. But these are 
customers and enterprises that were earlier unbanked uh, or underbanked. Even in, in even to this day, a number of the SMEs we serve are first-time lenders, or we are the first-time lenders, or they are the first time coming in because they haven't got access to uh, a bank yet to receive that loan. So it's a little bit of background about the industry, uh, and within that, what we do is try and identify. In positive impact focused financial institutions operating across any of these categories. You know, we've invested into MFIs, SMEs, also off-grid solar because it has an access to credit. It has a component of access to credit. So we've done uh, a very similar approach uh, and increased it incrementally to the broader financial inclusion space. Uh, the underlying theme has always been, for us at least, building financial resilience. So how do you go offer credit for enterprises and beyond that, savings, deposits, insurance? In the ESG investing discussion, there's been um, a conversation around trade-offs. So perhaps the more you try to do good through investing, I think a, a big presumption these days is that you have to sacrifice financial return. In conversations that I know you and I have had, we discussed the idea that there could be a convergence between financial return and actually achieving positive impact for, for society, especially as it relates to loan repayments and things like that in the credit space. Talk to us a little bit about that and how you see the convergence kind of playing out. Yeah, and I think for us at DWM and a number of other impact investors that are operating in a similar niche, impact investments mean no trade-off between financial and social returns. You know, that's always been the philosophy we've been founded on. Now, having been around for uh, nearly two decades, we are seeing examples of that play up. We are seeing examples where uh, some of our investments, and this is across the industry, you know, not just DWM, but a number of our other peers as well, have seen investments, say, for instance, on the equity side, where the exits have been through an IPO, which by that point tells you clearly that it is now uh, an example where there's uh, the ability to go into a commercial return and that it's achievable at scale and that there's more and more examples of uh, of this happening. And so we have clearly seen examples where there's no need for a trade-off between you know, market rate returns and achieving positive social impact because all of these, m many of these that have, that the example that I was giving on the IPO have been microfinance institutions and they've been strongly successful, you know, positive uh, social impact that's been achieved with a clear focus on serving the vulnerable segments and have IPO'd over the last three to four years and and have been, you know, oversubscribed in all these instances. So that's one. The other thing we've seen is even the types of investors, I think, that go into these deals uh, is indicative. Uh, and so in going back to the example of India, because I was reading this report where they talk about impact investing within India itself and how it's evolved over the last decade. So Within that, uh, I think uh, earlier what I mentioned is the growth from 300 million to 3 billion, but also 75% of that was financial services, and now it's closer to a 50-50 split. Now, within these financial services deals, 56% or sorry, 55-60% to 60% of those came in in the form of club deals, which means it's a mix of impact investors as well as commercially-minded VC and PE firms, which is a powerful stat. So we are saying that you know, if 20% was impact investor-only deals, 
The remaining 20% was commercial investor purely deals. And the majority of it, 60%, was a mix of commercial and impact investors. So we are seeing the convergence uh, of uh, market rate returns alongside positive social impact. And one way we've seen it play out is that a number of our co-investors are among those you wouldn't traditionally consider impact. The company would have been seeded, funded, supported initially by a cohort of impact investors. As it matures, as it proves out its business model, you see more and more commercial capital coming in, which is what we want to see. But I do want to caveat here that even within impact investing, there can be a spectrum. There can It can range from investors like us who focus on market rate returns. It could be investors who are aiming for uh, tougher markets, you know, like fragile and conflict affected states. It could be those that are aiming to invest into unproven, untested models yet. And so in such instances, uh, you, you're not clear what the risk return, what the risk return characteristics are yet. And there, there's an emerging field or you know, a field that's been around but is gaining more prominence now called blended finance, where uh, the expectation is that in instances where this uncertainty or a gap in knowledge uh, or untested methods or tougher markets, any of these exist, a catalytic investor whose priority is to focus more on the impact comes in to try and incentivize private sector capital so that the risk and reward gap, it starts to balance itself out. So that's my caveat. I think the uh, answer I'm giving you is very specific to DWM and how institutions like ours uh, operate. But there is a certain group where or there's a certain area where it's essential for catalytic capital to come in and where there might be a trade-off. Do you find that a big part of your role at DWM is educating some of your clients or investors when you're fundraising on the opportunities in the risks? Do you find that perhaps you have to educate more on the situation than you would perhaps for other types of investing? It's a, it's a good question. I think now that the industry has been around for uh, nearly two decades, what we've seen is there is a group of investors, uh, both institutional investors uh, as well as uh, the multilateral development banks that we know of. So there's a certain group that are aware of what impact investing entails. They have a clear sense of what this track record is because in their minds they've seen it evolve, they've seen it mature, and they know what achievable returns are, what achievable impact is, and what they should expect from new investors. So there's that one cohort. Then there's uh, another cohort for those that haven't actually dabbled yet as asset allocators within impact investing, but have recently made it a priority to do so. And we're seeing more and more of that, which is a positive for the industry. And so as we see more and more of that, it's these in institutionals typically who have allocated or foundations who have allocated a certain amount uh, of their uh, of their AUM to focus on impact investing. And they are trying to understand the landscape. They're trying to understand how the track records work. And in those cases, yes, we do, we do spend time walking through what our thesis has been on the impact side, why financial inclusion is where we focused on, how we've broadened it out. Because at DWM, we've started looking at energy as well as water and sanitation. A number of our peers have also gone into healthcare, education. Uh, and so how that 
translates into investments, how we go about sourcing, to give more understanding on how the operations are done, how we are similar to regular PE or debt funds, commercial PE or debt funds, and also how we are different, uh, what we do differently, particularly on the impact side of things. And so in those instances where it's newer investors to the space by virtue of making it easier for them to understand it, we do spend time going through these details, showing them our research. There's yet another type of group, I think, which is you know, what I was alluding to earlier, where it's fund managers like us sometimes. We're talking about investing in innovative concept, unproven industry. In such instances, it's, I think, mutual learning. Investors as well as the fund managers together go through on trying to understand what the market is, what the region is, what the risks are, and how we can take steps either in the structure of the fund itself or in the way in which we go about investments to sort of mitigate those risks. So I'd say it's, uh, yeah, I think that's how we've seen it split up. What are some of the issues that you come across that regionally in Asia may be a little bit different than some of the issues that we come across in the United States that people tend not to think about, but that those who are in Asia who you, the types of companies that you invest in or organizations confront on a daily basis? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's one I'll have to think about somewhat because there clearly are differences, you know, in the way, in the way uh, operations are handled. The biggest thing that comes to mind immediately is the, the difference in operations in terms of personnel, um, especially because we're working with uh, either rural or peri-urban um, towns and uh, towns and villages, in those instances, the most important thing from a financial inclusion standpoint has historically been feet on the street. So it's uh, you have loan officers going out into the field. Um, and in some of our companies, we have you know loan officers that are number in the thousands. So that's the number of employees purely to serve the rural borrower because it's uh, it's much easier to go and and talk to them and meet with them where their home is. Uh, now we're seeing, you know, there's more fintech coming in, but we're not yet at a point where it's become completely digital. I think the feet on the street uh, idea still exists. So I'd, I'd say from an operation standpoint, that's one difference we've seen. The other, uh, I think, element that we've noticed is there's a number of these financial products and services, especially that companies like ours develop to serve the underserved segments because it's been because there's no one else that's available to serve them at this point. So it's more creative products that we see as a result of the pandemic. Now, one of our portfolio companies is coming up with an emergency loan slash working capital type of product for some of their clients to help them right through this liquidity crisis that they may be facing. We've seen examples of that in some of our other financial institutions as well on how they're adapting to it. So I think that inherent sense of innovation given that it's a newer industry, given that operations are still fairly lean, you see a lot more of that creativity coming through. So I'd say those are two of the biggest things. I mean, another example is as a result of the pandemic, some of our financial institutions gave, sent out a number of calls to their client base, you know, 95%. So they're more in touch with their clients. Uh, and the calls were just to check in and say, how are you doing? You know, are you doing okay? How is your family? Uh, not in any way a loan-related 
or a financial institution specific call but it was more as a relationship manager who knows his or her client reaching out to her uh, and asking her if everything was going okay because it's um, you know it's not something any of us had seen before and that's how they were trying to adapt and that's how they believed the best way to uh, grow their business once recovery is on the cards you know that's the best way to go about it so i think those two i would say have been uh, our clear differences that come to mind right now and the other one is the difference in infrastructure obviously i think the two that i described are a result of what is underlying it as a difference in infrastructure as a result of which you need to be more creative you need to be more innovative you you look at other op- ways in which you can serve segments that are otherwise practically unreachable uh, and so now we are starting to see some improved infrastructure in some of our countries over which either you know there's a good better technology stack right or there's better governance coming in from either the central banks or from uh, any of the other government uh, institutes or government bodies that are present locally and so we start to see more and more being developed for instance we're seeing the usage of alternate credit scoring because a number of our clients don't have a fico score uh, or the equivalent of a fico score the alternate credit scoring using i mean there are some cases that use mobile data others that use their cash flows from the bank statement to build up a surrogate um financial cash flow system and so there we're starting to see more and more of that uh but i think the underlying difference is as a result of a difference in the infrastructure that's available public infrastructure uh, as a result of that you need to develop either business processes or business products that help you reach your customer and serve them the right way So the type of work that you do sounds um not only fascinating but also fulfilling. What's been your favorite part of a career in impact investing? The favorite part I'd say is uh, uh maybe there's a couple of things. So the the first one is it's the people. Uh, and that sounds like a it's a it's a very generic statement but the fact is it's it's some of the smartest smartest people, you know, dedicating their brain power uh to try and solve some of the world's most challenging issues uh dedicating their brain power their passion we see that within the in- impact investing industry itself so investors uh, themselves who are working at the fund managers but we also see it a lot in the entrepreneurs that we invest in uh, and so a lot of them for us a big thing is stakeholder alignment the way in which you ensure that impact continues to grow is by investing into institutions that are run by a management team or by promoters who are aligned and in sync with your priorities on uh, on achieving positive social impact so it is heartening to see uh, in a world where everything else is uh, is a little bit topsy turvy but it's very heartening to see people who are spending all of their time their efforts their passion in coming up with ideas to solve uh, some of the largest socio economic challenges we are facing um the other thing i'd also say is if it's possible for an industry to be a startup you know that's where impact investing is at right now um it's very exciting to be a part of uh, partly because it's a growing industry uh, but mainly it's uh, you know it's a motivating factor i think for a number of people that work in the industry to be a part of something and to have a role however small uh, in guiding what route the industry as a whole ends up taking 20 30 40 years from now So I think those two still um at a high level are a couple of my favorite aspects of the industry right now.
Not surprising. Sounds great. And I want to thank you very much for joining the program. Thank you, Tim. To learn more about SUMA and development world markets, you can visit dwmarkets.com. The Sustainability Project is hosted and edited by me, Tim Quinn, and sponsored by the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. Visit their website, stern.nyu.edu sustainability, or find them on LinkedIn or Twitter at NYU Stern CSB. We hope you join us for our next conversation as we sit down with more Stern alums to hear about their stories in ESG and sustainability.